Our scripture reading this morning will be from Psalm 127 and 128. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Please join me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessed Sunday morning where we gather in your house, this church, as one single community of believers. Thank you for those who have come who don't yet know you but are willing to hear. Open our ears to hear this message that you've put on Pastor Grant's heart and let us just live our lives for you and lay down our own wills and wants and and follow your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Carol. That was the sermon. (laughs) May we lay our will down, our will and wants. I can't say it as good as she did. May we lay down our will and wants for his will and wants in our lives. This is a beautiful beautiful passage. And I want to remind you where we are in the Psalms. This is a collection of Psalms, a little subset of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And they were collected and organized in this way, starting uh, starting back uh, in Psalm 120 and going to Psalm 134, these 15 Psalms that are organized as part of this little, you know, we, we talked like it's an album, like it's this cohesive uh, section of the Psalms that does it, is its own thing, even as it fits into the, the Psalms in general. And these were like their holiday music, the, the holiday music that Jesus would have sung, the, the Jewish people as they are going towards Jerusalem for the feast. This was the stuff they would sing. And a lot of it's just very beautiful. And these words are just absolutely beautiful, aren't they? Just the what beautiful language, what beautiful sentiment, what an what a uplifting passage. Except that's similar. This is why the hardest, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I shouldn't say out loud. Sometimes the hardest day to preach is Mother's Day. Because that's a complicated relationship. And when you're talking about your mom and and her mom and your children, not everybody has the, the thing they wanted. In fact, I mean, there are very few of us that go, I, when I was 16 years old, outlined my life, and here I am. That's just not very many people's story. 
And we're coming up to Christmas. And we all know that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I actually think that's when pitchers and catchers report in February. But, um, you know, uh, Christmas is a joyous, oh, and the children and the gifts and the whole thing. But you and I both know that Christmas is a very difficult time for a very many people because some of those people that you hope would be in your living room with the joyous and the singing and the gifts and the whole thing are mad at you or you're mad at them or you haven't talked to them. And there's just, it's difficult. Like you read stuff like this and then you go, gosh, what am I supposed to do with something as beautiful as um, behold, children are a heritage from Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And you go, man, that is a picture of a family that I would even say very few have. So you have to make some hermeneutical choices. You have to decide how to read these things. And and so before, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be 20 minutes before I get to the actual scripture today. We're, I, I, if I could do it in 20 minutes, that would be amazing. We need to see how it fits in the Psalms of Ascents. We need to see how these passages fit in the overall teaching of scripture. Because just like, you know, I, you know, I made that, it's a dumb analogy, but I'm dumb. Um, uh, that the Psalms of Ascent are, are like an album, you know, then each song on an album, well, if you take that, just that, you would think, oh, this artist sounds like this. This artist writes about this theme. And then you go, well, actually, the more you hear, the more you go, no, there's actually lots of melodies. There's actually lots of themes. And some of them even seem in tension from each other, but you're building a full picture of a person. And when that person is God that we're trying to build a full picture of, we can't just zoom in on one passage and go, that's the end of the story. You with me so far? So we need to first talk about how we misread stuff like this. So let's start with the, the misreading of these Psalms. I worry about two things. The first thing I worry about is that we might take Psalms like this or passages like this, and that we might pronounce judgment on ourselves. Some of us in the room are really sweet-hearted people, or, or if by some, you know, by some happen chance you're on YouTube right now and going, I want to know what this means. Um, some of us might look at this and go, man, I, I tried to let the Lord build the house, but I didn't get, I didn't get this picture of an easy, prosperous family. It must be that I'm wrong. And there are whole movements. And I don't, I don't spend much time preaching against things. That's just not, I don't feel like that's the most fruitful thing to do. I take this pulpit very seriously. That doesn't seem to be the thing that I should do most, most Sundays. But there is something called the prosperity gospel that I think deserves to be preached against. Amen. And I worry that some of us have sat under teaching that said things like, well, if you don't live the idyllic American life, that's because you have somehow failed God. And let me, get this, let me get this straight. Maybe you have been part of your own problem. I don't know. I'm sure you weren't perfect and neither was I. But to say I didn't get the life situation that I was hoping to get 
therefore God must be punishing me for my sins, is not biblical. It's something that people standing in positions like I'm standing in right now use to control, use to raise funds, use to lift them, elevate themselves, but it is not biblical. It's all over, but it's not what the Bible says. And I worry that we sit under judgment, self-inflicted judgment, when really God's trying to build something beautiful in our lives. The second thing that I worry about is that we might fall into prosperity gospel thinking. Prosperity and gospel really shouldn't be a thing that happened together. Now I'll explain a little bit. And this is a, you know, should be a, a semesters-long series of sermons. I'll do the best I can in a short amount of time. But what I mean by prosperity gospel is this mechanical idea of God's blessing. Where if I put A, B, and C in, God owes me X, Y, and Z out. If I pray, if I stop cursing, if I don't look at dirty pictures, if I give to the poor, if I vote right, think right, attend the right, do the right stuff, then what God owes me is ease and comfort. That's one of the least biblical ideas that I can think of. However, you can see the popularity in it. It'd be a pretty, if it was true, I'd love to preach it. Hey, if you do well, then you'll do good. Or is it the other way around? If you do good, you'll do well. And that's not nothing. You reap what you sow. This is true. But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Prosperity gospel thinking, first of all, is self-defeating. Like from a philosophical perspective, I can't submit to God. That's basically what it says, right? If you will submit to God, then he will give you health, wealth, and prosperity. And by prosperity, it always means material stuff. So how can I say I'm going to submit to God and then expect any one particular set of material results? Do you see how that's self-defeating? Do you see how I can't go, I'm going to love Tiffany well, and then she's going to do this, this, and this. It's lasagna for dinner every night, and where every anniversary is an angel game. Like, that's, that's dumb at the beginning. To say, I'm going to live for Tiffany's best, and then demand that I get my way, is self-defeating. It doesn't make sense. You can't say, God, you can have my will, and God, here's my list of demands. Prosperity gospel thinking also makes light of our call call to suffer. And by the way, the call to follow Christ is a call to suffer. Now, it doesn't always mean martyrdom, although we might be tougher if it did. But when Jesus told people the gospel, Jesus, the one we are here to worship today, it is Christ in our eyes, and our vision. We don't care anything except what Jesus thinks. It is the mind of Christ. It is not one particular theological pursuit or camp. I don't care about any of this theological camp or that theological camp. What I care about is Christ and what Christ thinks. And when Christ went from town to town as a gospel preacher, he said, die to yourself and follow me. 
die to yourself and then hand over your list of demands does not make sense. It's foolish. So much of the teaching of the New Testament is a call to die to ourselves. Paul writes about joy and grace and love, and he does it from Roman prisons. When you think of the life that the New Testament authors lived, John apparently is the only of the 12 apostles who lived to the end of a natural life, and he was boiled in oil at one point and exiled to an island. It's pretty difficult to say that what God wants for us is to have one particular version of worldly prosperity. You think of Christian martyrs. I think of people like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Do you know these stories? Young men in college who felt a call to go reach a particular uh, group of people in Central America. And their lives ended very quickly. Now we either go, well, they must have been out of God's will. Or we go, they understood the life of sacrifice. It was Jim Elliott that told us, he is no fool who gives what he cannot hold on to to receive what he cannot lose. That's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. Are you with me? I think of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote beautifully about pacifism as a Christian author and a Christian pastor in Germany and then saw the rise of the Nazi party and was martyred. I think of Lottie Moon. We're, gonna, we're going to um, take a Lottie Moon Christmas offering um, at the end of December because that's what we do and it goes to missions around the world. And Lottie Moon was such an inspiring woman who gave up the idea of, <laughs> you read her story, and she broke up an engagement over theological differences. Can you imagine that kind of conviction? Um, but almost starved over and over in China and lived a, basically a full life. But every one of those years was difficult. And I look at people like that and I go, prosperity gospel? Do you know how ridiculous that would sound? to somebody who's near starving so that they might, for the sake of the love of God, win some to Him? In the world's eyes, Paul and John and Peter and the next generation of church fathers after them lived very non-prosperous lives in the world's eyes. Didn't Jesus live a very, in the world's eyes, a very non-prosperous life? It is right to say he bore our sins so that we might leave, live in the freedom of forgiveness. It is wrong to say he was poor so that we might be rich. Or have a perfect family that looks great on Instagram. That's not a bad thing. We need Christian rich folks, but we need Christian poor folks. We need Christians with big families and full tables. We also need Christians without that. But what Jesus did come to give us, what all of the first generation of church fathers and mothers and Christian martyrs knew, what the, is that there are things way more important than worldly prosperity. Am I preaching 
to you yet. That all of that stuff and the perfect family, and that's not what matters. But rather, there is a peace that surpasses understanding. There is everlasting love that neither height nor depth nor life nor death can separate us from. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that when you are clinging to that, you don't want enough. It's not that you want too much. It's not that you go, oh, I'm being too demanding to ask for stuff. No, it's that unending joy right now is available to you. You could have peace in your heart no matter what your situation is. You could have everlasting, abundant life welling up from inside you like living water. And you just want stuff? And you just want a perfect little family? They all back talk anyway, I promise. There is abundant life in Christ for every pauper, every leper, every lowly fisherman, and anyone else who would die to ourselves, which means, if it means anything, it must mean dying to the idea that I'm going to find my joy in worldly prosperity and follow Jesus and trust him instead. There is joy, there is peace. It is not that people want too much from God, it's that they don't want, they want too little. In this case, in the case of this like image of these, these perfect little families in, in Psalm 127 and 128, that do, they just look amazing. Like who doesn't want that? They look, well, and I know some people go, I don't want that, I don't want, I don't feel like God's called me to family, great. You don't have to. But in this particular case, the, prosper, the prosperity gospel would ignore the biblical truth that God calls different people to different family experiences. Fortunately, it was Monday when I was writing this part of the sermon, um, and I've had a week to cool off, so you're, you're not going to get 30 minutes on 1 Corinthians 7 right now. But 1 Corinthians 7 makes it so very clear that Paul says God has given some people the gift of marriage and family, and God has given some people the gift gift of singleness with which they can serve the Lord and they are two just gifts from the Lord so steward what you got and this idea of like Norman Rockwell two and a half kids one and a half dogs the the yard the whole thing like it's not biblical what is biblical is that God will build a life for you and be your provider and give you peace and joy if you will die to yourself and follow him no matter how many people are at your place for Thanksgiving. Prosperity gospel thinking also misunderstands the meaning of blessing. You're just, they're just bad at reading their Bible. And again, I don't speak out against very much. You know, it's not like me. But I feel like, especially in this passage, it needs to be said. The word blessing, the Hebrew used here, is uh, esher which really means just happy. So it refers not to a state of circumstances, but rather a state of being. Can I say that again? I am blessed refers to a person's contentment level, their happiness level, their emotional state, not the amount of people and things around them. So when we say that we have been blessed by God, almost exclusively we mean he added either people or stuff to our lives. 
And that is an improper way. That There are words for that in Hebrew, and this isn't it. Rather, blessed, what hashtag blessed might refer to in a biblical sense is, man, it's not that anything's changed in my life, but I just have peace from the Lord. I just have a joy and I can't tell you where it came from. It's not that there's more money in the bank account. It's not that I went outside and the pickup turned into a Ferrari. It's, it's not that everybody in my life said sorry and started being nice to me. That's not what happened. But I'm telling you that as I've leaned into God, He has provided for me a peace and a joy and a sense that I'm going to be okay, a happiness. We are more confident. I, I, I don't know what else to say. Typically in the American church, we are more confident saying God can solve your financial problems than we are saying God can make you happy. And I don't know if God desires to solve every one of your financial problems. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's what he's doing in your life, but I do know that he, as you walk in step with him, produces love and joy and peace in your life. I can't promise this over here. But as, as you walk with the Lord, I can promise contentment. Maybe we have made blessing, the word blessing, maybe we have made it synonymous with prosperity when really it should be synonymous with happy, with content, with a deep sense of being okay. And I don't, I don't think that's hard to undo in our heads if we go, have you ever had plenty and been miserable? You have. Have you gotten to the point in your life where you figured out that it wasn't one more raise, promotion, whatever, that was going to solve your problem, that was going to solve the, the black hole that is your heart? It's easy to do. We, we live in a, a culture, it's not just America, it's the, the world, the, the Western world at least, but, but it's just like the prevailing culture, this idea that kind of anybody can come from anywhere and work hard enough and be smart enough and have a good idea and enough gumption and they can prosper. And you know what, quite frankly, I'm down with that. That's great. I love that. I love that we're not born into strata and whatever anymore, but rather, yeah, if you've got a good idea and are willing to work hard and catch a break here and there that you can you know, live above your station and all that. And that is great, but we just can't apply that to the kingdom of God. It's different. In fact, I'd like to remind you that that would have been very foreign to the authors of Scripture. The person writing Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 did not have an idea of social climbing. But rather, if they were born on a farm to a farmer, pretty good chance they're a farmer. If they were born in a priestly line, pretty good chance they're going to get trained to serve at the altar. If they were born in a royal line, well, pretty good chance they're going to end up in a palace. So this idea that what blessing means is social climbing would have been totally foreign to the authors of your Bible. So the biblical idea of blessedness 
I don't want to rob you of its incredible beauty and radical nature. In fact, I think it's much more radical than an idea that like blessing means material prosperity. Here's what blessing means. is It's way crazier, actually, than simple material prosperity. In fact, every YouTube ad is telling me how to be rich. Like that, that wouldn't be that unusual for preachers to stand up and go, I can... You do it right and I can make you wealthy. That's how every like infomercial at 2 a.m. sounds. It's way wackier than that. It's way more amazing than that. It's way more beautiful than that. The truth is that joy is available where you are right now. The peace is available where you are right now. So it would be wrong to read these psalms as promises for a certain style of family or a certain level of prosperity. It's much cooler than that. So how do we? If that's how we might misread these, how, will, how do we read psalms like this? How do we read passages like this properly? Well, first of all, you need to understand that these are wisdom psalms. And wisdom psalms, you read differently than other kinds of psalms. We've talked about psalms a lot here uh, over the fall. We, a few summers ago, we went through different kinds of psalms on Wednesday nights. We're talking about different kinds of psalms and how to approach um, different kinds of psalms and understanding that just like our poetry, our art has genre and form, and you read a uh, a fairy tale different than you read a newspaper article, that's true of Scripture too. There are different literary forms and genres. So when you come to something that you go, oh, this is wisdom material, you need to have some knowledge about what biblical wisdom material is supposed to be, how it's presented in Scripture. And the first thing I would tell you is that it is like facets on a diamond more than it is a one passage, one all be all. That we are learning about a portion of wisdom when we read wisdom material in the scripture. And you have to continue to get all, put all the facets together. Maybe the facets on a gem are, are a good way to think of that. Maybe it's more like a chapter in a book. You don't read one chapter in the book and go, now I know everything about this topic. In fact, it's more like a chapter in a book in a colossal library. Where the further, the more you discover, the more you dig in, the more you understand about wisdom. But it would be wrong to pick one book, go to one chapter and go, this is the, the uh, totality of biblical wisdom. You hold these things in relationship to each other. Am I making sense? If not, I can't say any better. So ask your neighbor. So there is no one place in the scriptures that gives us the whole picture of godly wisdom, unless it is the person of Jesus Christ. And even there, you have to take all of Christology, all you can know about Jesus to understand that. Because to a Hebrew thinker, and this is huge, this is really important, wisdom and God are synonymous. We talk like that, but we talk like that about love, because you and I have read the writings of John. God is love. And that's true. It's absolutely true. It's in the Bible. I believe it. It is also true. And to a Hebrew mind, they would have been more ready to say, God is wisdom. That, that which built the earth, that which the divine sovereign that holds all things together, that is wisdom. And they're right to say, God is wisdom. So you cannot 
any more boil down biblical wisdom to one verse or passage than you can boil the character of God down to one passage or pithy little line. Rather, you don't say, I've got it. You spend your whole life pursuing it, pursuing Him. So many times we have to hold things that are apparent contradictions in tension. That's the way it is when you're getting to know people. Um, is Grant funny? No. Yeah. You got to know both those things to know me, right? Is Grant an athlete? Hey, if we're in a room full of junior hires, yeah. Pretty good. I'd, I'd totally dominate 12-year-olds. <laughs> On a Major League Baseball field? No. You have to hold those things in tension to really know a person. So Proverbs sits very near Job. And Proverbs, over and over, is going to tell you, if you do the right thing, your life's going to go good. And I'm in. Are you in? Don't be dumb. It's beautiful, beautiful, you know, uh, advice. But Job really seems like he does everything well. And he's got some attitude problems. I could preach Job. I know what's going on. But still, the picture that we get in Job is sometimes you are the most righteous man in town and still it all falls apart because there's more going on. So you have Proverbs. You have Job. You have Proverbs, I have more examples, but for the sake of time, you have Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. This is the classic example. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That's good advice, right? If somebody's running their mouth, don't go over and argue with that guy. Like, just let him go. Then verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The author of Proverbs 26 was aware that those are contradictory. And isn't there great wisdom in that? There's somebody running his mouth. Are there any, is there any biblical advice that I could hold on to? Well, don't answer a fool in his folly, or else you'll be like him. And also, be sure and answer a fool in his folly so he doesn't think too much of himself. And you go, gosh... Those are both good pieces of advice. There's a time for both of those. Sometimes one of those is better and sometimes the other one is. How should I know? Well, because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because there's no wisdom without the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because it's an ongoing, interactive relationship, not just a set of pithy one-liners to memorize. So, I'm sure you can see how this wisdom literature is different than God's commands and promises. Thou shalt not commit adultery is not, well, this is wisdom literature. Let's, maybe there's a time and a place for adultery. There's not. Stop it. Don't do it. Say sorry. Work it out. It's a command. Thou shalt have no gods before me. We don't look at that and go, this is wisdom literature. There's a time to worship other gods. I mean, no, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't do it. Don't do it. Stop, repent, get right, and follow God and Him alone. It's a command. 
But wisdom psalms are not promises, they're guidance. And that's how we should read. Right at 20 minutes, I didn't lie, that's good. And that's how we should read Psalm 127 and 128. Not for promised outcomes, because this is the kind of, these are the kind of passages that get used as hammers to make good Christian people miserable. And instead of that, we should read them not for promised outcomes, but for the promise of content, good, and blessed lives. You know, if you're a student in my Bible class that I used to teach over at Trinity, we spend a lot of time going, here's how you can, you know, a 16, 17-year-old can get into the Scriptures, make a whole bunch of observations, and then after that observation, come up with one principle. So a lot of times the Bible is talking about a situation that's very different than yours, but you have to really dig in and think about it a lot and make a bunch of observations. And then it's helpful to go, okay, what's this really saying, this, this works-all-the-time kind of principle? And then you can apply it to your life that might look very different than the example the Scripture uses. And in fact, one quick observation you might make about these is that these songs that we're looking at today are just very male. These are all two dudes. How many of you women want your wife to be a fruitful vine? You know, you have to go, this isn't for me. Okay, but maybe there's a principle here that is. Maybe this story is different than your story, but maybe there's still... Good, solid, biblical, spirit-filled wisdom that you could apply to your life. So maybe we under, need to understand these more like they were probably actually used in, in the you know, times leading up to the coming of Jesus. Maybe we imagine a father and son walking all day, headed towards Jerusalem. I've been the son in situations like that, and I've been the father in situations like that. Some of the most precious time you'll ever get, just out on a trail, on a car trip, just kicking around life. They're headed towards Jerusalem. They have an unusual amount of time. Nothing needs to be planted. Nothing needs to be harvested. Nothing needs to be milked. We're all, we're, this is all we're doing is traveling together. The conversation involves laughter and storytelling. I'm sure the dad is for the 10th time uh, in the last 10 years is going, did I ever tell you about the conversation I had by this fig tree right here? Yes, Dad. You tell me every time we pass it. I'm sure there was a time when they were sitting around the campfire and, and the, the dad was grabbing something to eat and right as he was right here, the boy just tackled him. <laughs> Maybe the dad won, but he was sore for a week. <laughs> or the boy jumped up. He was fine. But you know, these are just people out on the trail heading to Jerusalem. They're Josh and they're joking, but then the conversation turns a little and the son is thinking about the future and how do you do it, dad? There feels like a lot of pressure. Am I going to be able to raise a family? Will I be able to build a life? Am I going to be okay? And then dad smiles, turns to him and goes, son, Unless Yahweh builds the house, you'll be laboring in vain. Son, unless Yahweh is your protector, you'll never feel safe. 
You can work your fingers to the bone. You can stay up late worrying. But if you'll learn to trust in the Lord now, you'll know what a peaceful life is like. That's how to read these psalms. So four big ideas from these psalms. First of all, we need to understand the futility of your best effort. This word vanity that's in here. I wish it was the same word that is in uh, Ecclesiastes, which is my favorite book in the Bible, but it's not. Vain is a, comes from a different word than it does in Ecclesiastes, but it means very similar things. Look at the start. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor will build it in vain. Does that mean it won't be successful? It's going to fall down? No, it might be beautiful. You might love it, but it will be vain. Does, it van- does vanity mean it'll be showy and prideful? No, it means temporary. It means it's not going to last. Unless the Lord builds the house, all of this that you build is going to be temporary. These are sobering words. They're familiar, but man, you know, I believe in hard work, and maybe you do too. It's good to get up early. It's good to give a good day's work. The Bible even would lead me that. The Bible in the New Testament says, he who does, uh, if a man does not work, he should not eat. Consider the ant. Look how, look how hard it works. It's, you should do that. Like, I believe in hard work, you know? And it's sobering to think that all of that work, if it does not begin and is not directed by the Lord, it, it doesn't last. It doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it's not important to us. It just means it's temporary. All of our work All of the things we build are not going to last. You think about crumbling ruins. You know, you think about like maybe you'd go see some Aztec ruins or you see some pyramids or, you know, you see a castle that's falling down. You go, man, when this thing was built, I bet the people who built it felt awesome. Now we look and we go, we don't even know really how this got here. All the things that we build are like that. In the world's eyes, it's all going to be crumbling ruins. Verse 1 really gets at the heart of a dad. You know, I want to provide and I want to protect. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor uh, over it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, a watchman stays awake in vain. These are like exactly what a dad wants to do. I want to build a life. I want to protect my family. And for, for the wisdom to come in and go, you know what, if you do that on your own, it's not going to work. Verse 2 gets at the ambition of a person. I want to achieve, verse 2, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Look, you want rest? It's not going to be found in anxiety. I want to achieve. I know it'll take hard work to get there, but unless the Lord is the builder, we're all just building sandcastles. Maybe you've seen some pretty impressive sandcastles, but the tide comes in and it's over. This is a life built without God as the general contractor. I used to work for the Elliott Corporation. My dad was the vice president, so they gave me all the jobs that made sure uh, I knew I wasn't the vice president. And so one of the things I would do is I would go put up construction signs uh, before, um, and the big, you know, big concrete tilt buildings and whole malls and, you know, 
eight-story steel frame build, like big buildings, big projects. Um, and, but the first thing we would do is we'd go out and we had these green four-foot-by-eight-foot green signs that said the Elliott Corporation. So there were going to be all kinds of subcontractors that worked on that. There was going to be a steel guy. There was going to be a carpet guy. There's going to be a painter. There's going to be all this stuff. But all of it is going to be directed and guided by. And the, the, the general contractor, the builder, at the end of it, it was going to say, this is by the Elliott Corporation. And some of us feel like God is not the general contractor, but we are the general contractor, and God is one of the subcontractors. God, I've made a plan for my life. I'll tell you what it's supposed to look like. And I would like to use you as a subcontractor for this part and that part. Unless God is the general. Unless God is the one whose name is on the door. Unless you are constantly going, hey, I have a question. How do you want me to handle this? It'll be in vain. It won't last. At the end of the day, it won't matter. Who is the builder? Big idea number two is the stewardship of legacy. This, this, again, might not reflect your situation. Behold, children are a heritage. Remember that word heritage. From the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks uh, with his enemies in the gate. Um, maybe this doesn't reflect your situation and maybe it does, but let's dig in. What's the principle here? That every faithful person has to have a family like this? No. Let me tell you, that's pejorative when we think about ancient writers. They knew about infant mortality. They knew about mortality in general. They knew about families breaking up. and It's not a naive passage. But rather, this is not a picture of every family, but rather a reminder of where good gifts come from. I don't know if we should read this and think, if I don't have a happy, godly family, then I've been cursed by God. Rather, we should read this and remember, your heritage isn't from you, it's from the Lord. When the author wrote this and said children are a heritage from the Lord, he was not referring to the part of having a family that is lovey and squishy and, ah, come here, you rascal. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is how kids are your retirement plan, your heritage, somebody to give the family farm to. And in his day, without any social net at all, and without any 401k, and without any of that, your kids were your heritage. And so the big idea here is not, if you love the Lord, you'll have a bunch of little whippersnappers running around. Rather, it is, you got a bunch of whippersnappers running around, they are not your hope, God is. Your 401k is from the Lord. Your retirement plan is from the Lord. If you have a high salary and a bunch of retirement, don't get cocky. It's from the Lord. If you don't have any of those things, I guess you're just going to have to trust God. I don't, know, I don't know what the other plan is. This word heritage is important. Older translations use the word gift. And that, that's pretty weak translation. I'm, I'm, I don't dig that. This word that we have heritage in the ESV sometimes gets translated inheritance. So if you have kids, that is God caring for you. God is the provider of children. We think of the relational aspects. They would not. They would have thought of like the retirement aspects. Where is your heritage? Where is your hope? If it's not from the Lord, it's vanity. 
But also there is this idea that with the gift, with the heritage of the Lord comes mission. Did you see um, the stuff about the arrows? Like, uh, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children's of one's youth. I think we can do this again. We have to like break it down to principle and then apply it. But any gift that God gives you, any part of your heritage comes with a mission. Kids are not about your greatness, but rather, if God has blessed you with children, they are arrows for you to shoot into the world so that the world might know some salt and light. And I think that applies to all kinds of gifts that God might have given you. You have a high salary, that salary is not for you. It is an arrow that you might shoot into the world so they might know salt and light. You have a good sense of humor, you have, um, you know, a uh, you live in a strategic place. These are arrows. Mission and the gift, the blessings are together. Big idea number three is the fear that leads to happiness. The fear that leads to happiness. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. I should make the note here that this is even, the example used in this psalm is even more specific than the last psalm. But it does begin with one of these everlasting principles for everyone, everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed, so happy, content, not dripping with gold. That's not what we mean by blessed, but happy or content is everyone who fears the Lord. The second part of this psalm will be an example of this blessed life, but it begins with this universal principle of, of fearing God. And I've, I've heard too many sermons about how fear actually means respect or it means awe. No, don't insult the person who wrote this passage. Fear, he knew how to say awe. Fear means fear. Do you want to live a life full of blessing? It's going to start with you going, oh my gosh, I'm starting to get an idea of how big and mighty God is. And what could I do but fall at his feet? Do you see again how this doesn't jive with the prosperity thing at all? You don't look at a holy, mighty, powerful, loving, forgiving, just God and go, oh my gosh, I am so, I'm just falling in fear at your feet. Here's my list of demands. You just fall. It's fear. Fear is, in fact, I'll tell you what, you are going to serve, I would even say you are going to worship whatever it is you fear. Some of us fear the way people will view us. Oh, my biggest fear is that people will think I'm unsuccessful. And you're gonna worship that. You're gonna live your whole life trying to prove to other people that you're awesome. Some of us are afraid of death and we're going to spend our whole lives trying to build a legacy and some to leave behind and, and we're going to try to do all we can to, to, to build into our own health and that's going to be the thing we worship and we spend all our time, money and energy on. And so that's what you worship because that's what you fear. But if you will fear the Lord, how could you but worship Him? How could you but wake up and go, oh, mighty God, have you given me air in my lungs again today? Have you woken me up again? 
Is, is your mercy new again today? It's another day of mercy instead of the smiting I deserve. God, your love is so trustworthy. Do you still love me, Dad? How could someone as powerful and wonderful as you love me every day? How could I do anything except worship you with all that I've got today? And if you are spending your time nitpicking God, you don't fear him. There's no blessed life there. Fear the Lord and then watch the life that he builds around you. It's not yours to build. This really is a picture, a beautiful picture. I mean, I think that's one of the struggles with reading things like this is you go, I do desire this. Like, this sounds great. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. And hey, um, that doesn't mean she's going to have a bunch of babies, dudes. It's not. Learn to read your Bible. Um, if your wife is a fruitful vine, it means she's thriving. She's healthy. You're, she's, she's enjoying things. Like a, a fruitful vine is what a vine's supposed to do. This doesn't mean um, if you fear the Lord, your wife's going to have a bunch of babies. It means you're not going to be a tyrant and your wife will be happy in your house. That's good. Yeah. Sometimes that means kids. Sometimes it doesn't. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. You just picture these olive shoots just like coming up. That's an orchard, baby. Like olive shoots are turning into trees. It's the next generation of the family is going to be okay. This sounds great. And they're around your table. Where else do you want them? Behold, thus shall uh, the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May he set the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. What a beautiful picture that is. It really is a beautiful picture. It's a great life. But look, that is an example of a blessed life. It is not the only blessed life. Rather, again, you can't say, God, I'm going to serve you, and then this is the life I demand you build around me. You say, God, you can have it all. I'll just, I'll just live for you, and that's, I'm just in. I'm done. I'm not going to live for anything else. I fear you. I don't fear death. I don't fear poverty. I don't feel other, fear other people's opinions of me. All I fear is the, is the Lord. I see you in your might, and I'm just going to live for you, and I see the empty tomb, and God, I'm just going to follow Jesus. And then you watch the life that he builds around you, and they don't all look the same. This is a great example of one. Do you guys know John Stott? John Stott's one of my favorite authors. He was an Anglican pastor, um, spent his whole life at um, Lang Langdon, Lang Langdon Place, um, Anglican Church in London, and just one of my favorite authors. I've, just, I, you know, I've read probably 15 John Stott books, and I haven't even scratched the surface. And he wrote about theology, and then he also wrote a bunch of stuff about birdwatching. He wrote about gardening. He was like a real like a Renaissance guy. He had a lot of hobbies and stuff, but he was never married. No kids. To look at that and go, it's too bad God didn't give John Stott a blessed life is foolish. No, rather, God built an incredible legacy around him that I'm part of. <clears throat> I have a friend named Nancy Donnett who I tell you about every once in a while that a lot of you might know, some of you at least know. Nancy um, 
long story, but was a successful nurse at Chomp, took a mission trip to the Philippines. Be careful taking a mission trip. It'll change your life. And it changed her life. And so she gave her life to missions and then ended up in Fresno. Um, and, and living in Fresno in a pretty rough neighborhood and doing like um, nursing to local people who couldn't go to the doctor or whatever. And, and I mean, Nancy's one of the most joyful, wonderful people I've ever been around. You can't stop from giggling. It's not just like laughing. It's like there's just joy bubbling out of Nancy's house at all times. God didn't, she, she's not married, no kids. And, the, and the, the blessed life that has grown around her. So we don't tell God what that life's going to look like. We fear the Lord and we watch a beautiful life grow up around us in His name. So just to conclude, and I'm sorry I took a while. Our part is not the results. We fear the Lord and we see what He builds. And I would want to leave you today just asking the question, by the way you live your life, what do you fear? Do you fear death? Do you feel fail- fear failure? Do you fear the, um, the, the future? Do you fear the, what other people think about you? Or is it the fear of the Lord that is driving you? Because I think what happens over a, the life of Christian maturity is eventually you get to a place. And I hope that we're all on our way to that because there's a bunch of little humans just over in this building over here that someday are going to look and go, what if I can't do it? What, what, if, what if I don't know how to do life as a Christian? What if I don't know how to get a job? And what, what am I supposed to do? And I hope that we are mature enough where we can go, oh, buddy. Unless God builds your house, you'll build it in vain. You fear the Lord, and He's going to build a beautiful life around you. Amen? Hey, why don't you close your eyes for a sec? I just was, this morning, praying for you guys was just really led. It might be that, you know, um, that this is one of those messages that God needs to save Christians, you know? We're already saved, and yet there's hurt. There's lack of understanding. We all have lack of understanding. There's disappointment and frustration. And I thought maybe I'd just give you a minute now to say, God, I will fear you and trust you with the future. I will trust you with the shape of my life, the shape of my family, the shape of my influences, my career. God, I'm not going to fear anything but you. I'm not going to worship anything but you. I'm not going to to give you my list of demands. Rather, God, I'm going to pray my heart. You're my father. You love me. You're happy to hear what my desires are. But God, my biggest desire is going to be you. And you know, it could be that you're in the room today and you're not a believer. You're, you're not walking with Jesus. And, and I would love to invite you to give up on all that stuff that's not working and follow Jesus. To repent. To turn from your ways of thinking about yourself. 
and instead to die to yourself and commit to following Jesus. He will build a beautiful life around you, full of contentment. It might not be an easy life. It might be a difficult life. It might be a short life. It might be a long life. But unless you commit your life to Him, it will be in vain. If you need to, for the first time, give your life to Jesus, would you just say, Jesus, I'm repenting of myself. Today I die to myself, and I'm going to follow you, live for you. Teach me wisdom. Teach me how to live with you. God, as we all just do a gut check of of thinking, what motivates us? What is it that we live in fear of? God, how could we live fully and only for you? Lord, would you show us the beauty of contentment and joy that can't be found anywhere but in you? And where there is hurt, life hasn't worked out the way people have hoped, God, be salve, be comfort. Lord, there are disappointments. It would be foolish to say there aren't. And where those disappointments are, God, would you be enough? Would your grace fill people's hearts? But Lord, may it never lead to bitterness. May it lead to hearts and lives fully committed to you. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.